all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and today we're talking about the fact that opiate deaths are skyrocketing. Suicide deaths are higher than they've ever been, but here we are having cuts in mental health services again. How can we let that happen? What is happening with the opiate addiction issue? Are addictive prescription drugs too easy to access? Is there a way to turn this around? So today I I want us to talk about some possible solutions, what you think maybe is going on. If you are having problems, call in. Maybe we can help you or help those that you care about. Um, Hopefully we can get a better understanding of how we got where we are. I tell you, today was one of those days as I was preparing for this show that I just started wondering, why are we where we are Back in the 60s and 70s, those of us who are older witnessed um, rampant illicit drug use. Many of us back in those days lost friends to drug overdoses. Then it seemed that the crisis somehow was averted. Things got better. Um, Only a few of us had family or friends in the early part of this century who died from accidental drug overdose. But then something happened. Something happened. Um, Now, it seems that the drug abuse and overdose use, um, instead of being from those illicit drugs, um, often are prescription drugs. And now, maybe, and we'll talk about this, due to the fact that prescription drugs individuals get addicted to, then a cheaper alternative is heroin. And so herons come back into the picture. And it it truly had sort of dropped out somewhat, except for a few areas of our country. So I'm throwing that question out again. Are addictive prescription drugs too easy to access? Today in the news, Congressman Tom Moreno just withdrew his name from being the U.S. drug czar due to his link that was uncovered by 60 Minutes to the legislation that weakened the DEA's enforcement power. Another issue that has come to light, just so you know if you didn't hear, is that a couple of individuals who were in the DEA management, upper management, they participated in the writing of the legislation they're no longer a- there. Guess where they work? They work as lobbyists for the drug industry. Now, 
Mississippi's not at the top of the problem. Um, as as you know, we're we're usually at the top or the bottom, whichever is worse. But not so yet with with these this problem. But we've had. Arise. Drug overdose deaths have reached a record high in Mississippi, and it does seem boosted in part by heroin, sometimes laced with something even more dangerous, fentanyl, which people often think is a fairly benign medicine used for pain issues. So fentanyl, remember, was the drug that um, Michael Jackson um, died from. Um, so I think, you know, our, our narcotics, uh, director, John Dowdy, uh, was quoted as saying Mississippi is emerging on the brink of a super pandemic. In 2016, Mississippi saw at least 211 deaths from drug overdoses. That's the highest in the state's history. Now, and around us, Tennessee um, has a much higher uh, death rate. Uh, their death rates are on the rise, and they are having significant problems, as are the other states that are surrounding us. So we're not alone. Um, the problem is out there and needs to be addressed. This is a public health emergency actually. Um, and it's not just in adults, it's in children. So those of you who think that this is just an adult issue, you're wrong. It's something that's affecting our our teenagers more and more frequently. And, and we absolutely have to do something about it. Uh, today, we have um, Dr. Mark Ladner, who will be calling in later to talk to us a little bit in the middle of his clinic day to talk uh, to us a little bit about um, maybe what you can do if you're having problems. Uh, but as we move along, I'd like to hear from you about what you think. Uh, maybe you as a, a person who can speak out about what's going on. Maybe you as a person who has a friend or family member that you lost to this, or maybe um, you as an individual who has anxiety, depression, um, thoughts of self-harm. So many times this is when people get into using drugs that they shouldn't as a self-medication to, to perhaps make themselves feel better. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 You can send an email to org to join this conversation. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit um, about what, why these drugs are so bad. I think one thing that um, we've seen, I mentioned earlier, is that since 2003, there's been somewhat of a steady rise. In 2011, it seemed that that's when we started to have an increase across the country. 
um, a wave of overdoses involving opioids. Um, and, and that family of uh, often addictive painkillers that are derived from the morphine molecule, okay? So it's morphine, fentanyl, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and then their cousin is heroin. So um, Mississippi is, now I said our deaths are not up as high as some other states, but let me tell you a little fact about Mississippi. Mississippi's one of a handful of states where there are more opioid prescriptions than there are people. In fact, the state prescribes so many opioid painkillers that each man, woman, and child could swallow a pill a day for 67 days without running out. Okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean they don't need to be used? No, that's not what that means. It means that individuals who have surgeries, who have other illnesses, often need um, these medications to help with the significant severe pain for a few days. What happens so many times is that they don't use them for a few days. They use them for longer than that. And as you use these medications longer, you really do become um, physically addicted to them. So we'll talk a little more about that as we move along. Let's go to our first caller. We have Elliot in Hattiesburg. Uh, Good morning, Elliot. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for being an early caller. You're going to start off our conversation. Now, you have a question about why are people so addicted? Well, I just want to make a comment. Look, that 60 Minutes episode on Sunday, that was, uh, right. it was just telling. It, right. I, I'm glad you brought it up. And uh, so, uh, anyway, you know, in this country, too, industry dominates. And uh, a lot of people talk about less regulation. Well, you know what? We need more. We need consumers to be protected. And we need to tighten down on these industries that won't play fair. You give them less regulation, they're not going to do the right thing. And you know what? We need to put the CEOs in prison where they need to feel the pain of what they've done because they're responsible for thousands of people dying. And it needs to come down from the top. Unless we make an example of those at the top who are responsible then we won't begin to tackle it. And and we need to strengthen consumer protections and, like I said, have more regulation, not less. Thank you. Thanks, Elliot, for your call and your opinion. I think there are many people out there who have concerns such as yours and thoughts. Um, Those of you who want to join in the conversation about the opioid addiction and epidemic and what maybe we need to do about it to keep from losing family members, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464, or you can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. Um. So so more controls is what Elliot's saying. Perhaps um, we do have inappropriate marketing. Um, I know that there are likely people out there going, well, who's responsible for prescribing these? And, and certainly we know uh, physicians are. Um, so we do need to, to, as physicians, I'm one of them, be responsible about what we re- prescribe and make sure 
that when we prescribe something that it's truly needed, that's definitely there. We also have to be um, putting too many controls on, be careful about putting too many controls on medical practice, um, on physicians due to the issue that, um, you know, you don't want to paralyze a a physician who practices appropriately from being able to treat appropriately. You don't want to add one more layer of difficulty. So there's got to be a happy medium of what you do. Is it the ability to prescribe certain numbers? Is it the ability... Um, that only certain individuals prescribe, what's the right answer? Sometimes you can't completely legislate this. Sometimes you you have to make sure that everybody's practicing appropriate medicine and, and have expectations there. So, um, again, uh, there, there are lots of questions out here, and honestly, I don't have all the answers. But I, I do know that there is, uh, there is some information going about where there are controls on all controlled substances. Now, that would even include a, a drug like methylphenidate, which is a very common medication used for the treatment of ADHD when prescribed appropriately. It is um, a great medicine and can be helpful for children. Do we want to paralyze um, physicians from being able to prescribe for that? Um, I say no, probably not. But that's, again, my opinion. So um, let's go on to our first break. And when we come back, we've got some callers getting ready on the line. um, And we'll go right to the phones. We're talking about the opiate addiction epidemic. We're talking about the deaths that we have. And we're talking about general mental illness and why individuals turn to drugs. Is there something we need to do to help that can serve people better? This is Relatively Speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and we'll be right back. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Relatively Speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. And today we're talking about opioid addiction, the rash of deaths and overdoses that are ongoing, the abuse of prescription drugs, the lack of interventions in mental health out there, um, all of that. What can we do? How can we make things better? I want us all to talk about that. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464. Let's go on back to the phones. Um, we're going to go to Charles in Bentonia. He yeah, has some well, comments about 
Pain Medicine. Good morning, Charles. Thanks for calling. Uh, I'm a disabled vet, and uh, I work every day. I work eight hours a day, and I work hard. Uh, matter of fact, I just went under went under uh, two full knee replacements. Uh, my question is, is this, especially with the last caller. Personal responsibility is a big thing in this. And uh, soldiers, you know, they fight. We're warriors. Mm-hmm. And and when you're in pain, it's hard to work. It causes depression. It affects the family. It really does. Some people need them to, to live and survive and be able to make a living. Uh, soldiers want a hand up, not a hand out. And, I mean, you can't live off a of disability. And if the only way you can work is with the help of some of these pain pills so you can manage your pain. I ain't talking about getting high and enjoying it. I'm talking about managing pain. It sure is making it a whole lot difficult when people realize this is all about personal responsibility. You just said it yourself. If they can't get this... Uh, uh, prescription drugs, they're just going to go right on over to heroin and get it. I mean, uh, I mean, I know there's a problem, but we've had addiction problems in America and all over the world for a long time. Uh, there's no easy answer to it, but uh, putting more regulation on it and putting CEOs for making a product in jail, I mean, for that, with Mississippi's obesity and food addiction is, is a true addiction, Shouldn't we put all the CEOs of McDonald's in jail? Yeah. I'll hang up. Charles, first of all, thank you for your service. We really appreciate that. And certainly there are people out there who have chronic, um, severe pain. Um, And many times they are put on these medications, these drugs, uh, for that chronic, severe pain. Uh, There are, though, however, some issues that we have about that in that perhaps there are better treatments for chronic pain than staying with uh, oxycodones and others. Sometimes pain management clinics can help with that. Um, There are other ways for treatment um, with that. And so I, uh, I think that... The issue, one of the biggest problems we have with these medicines like like oxycodone and hydrocodone are, is the fact that what happens is, we've talked about this on the radio show before, tachyphylaxis. That means that the dose that it has worked before, um, you kind of get immune to that dose, and so you have to increase it up many times and go up to get the same effect that you did from that initial lower dose. So that can be one of the problematic issues is that dealing with that lower um, dose and trying to stay on that lower dose that you always were on is, is not possible anymore. And then when you've been on the medications for a long period of time, what happens if you try to diminish the dose or come off the dose, many times you have a withdrawal. So many of these individuals, what happens to them is they aren't getting high on the drugs anymore. They're just trying to prevent withdrawal. Um, So that's many times why they need to continue to get the drug. 
And then there's that overlay of individuals with pain difficulties. So um, to go to a good pain management clinic to make sure that you're having your pain managed in the very best way that you can is what really needs to happen. And Charles, I I hope that um, everyone is hearing that we understand that there are many people out there with chronic pain and they really do need help and they do need treatment. So, again, thanks for your call. I appreciate that. Um, okay, uh, let's go to Carolyn in Ellisville. Good morning, Carolyn. Thanks for calling. Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking the call. Yes, you have a comment about the opioid addiction? I do. I was at a seminar, uh, a seminar not long ago, and we had a lot of discussion about the epidemic. And, you know, we're just in search of the answers and what to do. And my comment on this is that I think a lot of this goes back to the breakdown of the family, where there's not structure and discipline. When you don't have that in your home, the next source is from law enforcement. And I think our law enforcement does a great job with what they're able to do. But going back to the family situation, We've consolidated our schools. The children are out of their communities to go to school. Therefore, it's harder for parents or those that are involved with the children to be a part of the school system, and it gets so large and so many are involved there, and it's diminishing uh, accountability, responsibility. And there's, at one point in time, if there was not a Christian value in the home, there was still morality. The teachers were respected. If you were in trouble at school, then you had that issue when you came home. But it doesn't seem to be that way now. And there's just a lack of respect of each other. And in our communities, when you go into them now, the homes are designed so that you can come in and close up. Uh, There's a lack of community involvement, and people are so busy with their jobs. And well, Carolyn, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, that a lot of times having outside support, having um, the family support is, is very important. And many times individuals who turn to drugs are individuals who are not happy. Um, there is a statistic in Mississippi that... Um, in I believe it was 2014 or 2016, related to the the opiate death, 71 percent of those individuals had a mental health um, issue, um, and that's why I bring that up, Carolyn. I, I think that the it some of it certainly has to do with the breakdown of family and community uh, lack of community support. Some of it too may very well be um, the issue that. That revolves around the fact that um, when someone does have a significant mental behavioral health issue, there's not the support there. And uh, people turn to self-medication many times to find pleasure um, or to calm themselves down or to help themselves feel better. So I'm a firm believer that if we had better services there, we would do better and certainly better family support. So, Carolyn, I appreciate what you're saying in your call. Thanks for thanks for joining in. 
Um, I think this might be a good time. Um, I have um, Sarah Hart Fellows, who is um, on the line. And good morning, Sarah Hart. Are you there? Whoops. Hey, Dr. Buttress, how are you? There you are. Hello. Um, Sarah Hart Fellows is um, at the Center for the Advancement of Youth, and, and I ask that she call in and talk a little bit about a program that's happening Thursday night. And then, Wayne, you wait for us. We'll get back to you on the, on the phone lines. But, Sarah, tell us, tell us all a little bit about our program that we have going on. Absolutely. We're really excited about it. We're calling it Food for Thought, and it's a dinner series that is free and open to the public to register. We would love for it to be standing room only. It's going to meet once a month on Thursday evenings, and it's a great opportunity for folks in the community to come out and learn more about the challenges that are facing families and children and youth today. And, you know, even this Thursday, we're going to be talking about exactly what you're addressing today on the show, you know, mood disorders, anxiety and depression, and what that means for a child or a youth and understanding that at an early age um, and how to address that so that, you know, we don't see, you know, an epidemic rise in the state like you're talking about that other states are seeing. But, you know, we'll also be discussing, you know, things like ADHD and autism spectrum disorder and then you know, the challenges that parents face is, you know, what does good sleep look like for a child or what are healthy habits? But we're really excited about it. It's a time for folks to bring their questions. There will always be an opportunity for people to ask their questions to these doctors. And, you know, families, grandparents, aunts and uncles, um, we would love to see teachers and foster families come out and learn more about this. Sarah, thanks so much, Sarah Hart. Um, so how can they get more information on this, Absolutely. if you would give that out? So I will, um, I'm going to give everyone a website address and grab a pen. And if you don't have one, it's an easy one to remember, and I'm sure that MPB can post it. But it's umc.edu backslash answers, and that's umc.edu backslash answers. And again, it's free and open to the public. Dinner will be provided as long as it lasts, first come, first serve. So come and get a free meal, and also we'll have free child care available for ages 3 to 10. And the first, for, for everyone that wants to come this week, it is October 19th, this Thursday, and we're calling it State of Mind, the Truth About Anxiety, Depression, and Other Mood Disorders. Facing Our Children and Youth, this will be held at UMMC's Student Union, the Norman C. Nelson Student Union. Registrations at 615 for registration and dinner, and then the 45 and end at 730. And I would like to say thank you to the Junior League of Jackson. They absolutely, you know, hosted, sponsored this for us and made this possible. So we really appreciate them funding this for us. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah Hart. And Jay just told me he will post this on our mpbonline.org audio demand. Um, So any of you who didn't get all that information, we'll have it there for you. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling in. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So just a, a great opportunity to learn more about some of these issues. And we have we will have two psychologists and a physician who can answer questions about addiction issues, too. Um, let's go back to the phones, Wayne and Tishomingo. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning, Dr. Sue. Thanks I've for coming. I've got a um, 
uh, a little anecdote to uh, to give you, which goes uh, a little bit in opposition of the uh, general flow of things. Okay. Um, back in 2014, I had back surgery. And, um, of course, after you get some surgery, you're in some pain. And I came home with, a, uh, with some medications. My daughter took me to the pharmacy. We had the prescription filled. And somewhere in that line, that prescription got lost. And by the time I got home, uh, it was gone. It had vanished. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is that uh, I went and I, I called. Uh, this happened to be over the Labor Day weekend. It was, it was, just, it was just the Labor Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Now, I had, I had no medication. It uh, became time to take some medication, realized it, uh, that it had been left in the car or something. My daughter was unable to find it. When I called the uh, uh, the hospital, uh, it seems that this doctor was away for the weekend and had a, had another doctor on call. When I spoke to them and I told them what the situation was, uh, there was nothing they could do for me. I should call the the pharmacy. I called the pharmacy and started on that one around. Uh, well, they can't do anything without a prescription. So the thing about it is that uh, what I did is I was there uh, without any medication at all, uh, in pain, mm-hmm. in a great deal of pain. And the um, there was nothing that anybody could do. The only thing that I that I could do was that I had been given a prescription for Neurontin. And um, so I thought, okay, well, maybe it's time to take one of these Neurontins. And I took one of those and went to sleep immediately for like 18 hours. Uh, that's that's uh-huh. the way it affected me. And that's the way my pain got dealt with. Uh-huh. What I'm saying is that the restrictions on these medicines can be a little bit too restrictive. Yeah. Well, I will say, um, Wayne, certainly, like I said earlier, I appreciate the fact that some people have significant and severe pain. And certainly after surgeries, one often expects to have some pain and to be able to manage that pain. At the same time, um, you you would certainly understand that um when you have uh, physicians who are not familiar with the patient and someone calls in with a lost prescription, um, honestly, Wayne, I'll tell you, red flags do go up because there's been such a problem with the fact that people will abuse emergency rooms. I have a daughter who's an emergency room physician, and and um, that happens often, that people will go into an emergency room and um, they'll be a known entity. They know that they're coming in and they frequently abuse. So I agree with you. We've got to be able to have some kind of safety net for individuals like you who who end up with something like that. Um, but at the same time, there certainly was their concern. You got the prescription filled. Where did that medication go? And and likely, Wayne, it was stolen. Um, and so then you have to deal with that. And, and how in the world do we make sure that that, that doesn't happen? Um, you know, we have our expert that I promised. Dr. Mark Ladner is... Um, 
Jay, can you bring him in for me? Um, Dr. Ladner has graciously agreed to come in and speak with us some about this uh, addiction issue and perhaps maybe some avenues of better pain management and and the like. He's in Jackson, Mississippi. He's a psychiatrist and has done some addiction work in several different areas. Dr. Ladner, thanks for joining us. Oh, good morning. Thank you. I know you're busy. Um, can can you make um, a few comments about why you think we've gotten where we are and and what you think may be um, some helpful treatment solutions for individuals who have chronic pain, perhaps, and that then then they find themselves addicted to these pain medications. Uh, y- yes, I, one one thing I think I would state. First is the statistics show uh, 90% of the Lortab in the entire world is consumed in America. So there's some unique problems with America with opiates, and the the reasons for that are are multiple. Um, Some of these probably go back uh, 15 or plus years when OxyContin hit the market. It was kind of marketed as a safer opiate option, and that ended up producing uh, increased narcotic use. There was literature back 10-plus years ago mm-hmm. that you, know, you really weren't doing a good job if you didn't give narcotics and treat chronic pain, not really based on strong evidence. And then over time and over the past five years particularly, the data has shown that that's just not true, <clears throat> that most chronic pain conditions don't require opiates. And, in fact, it might even make them worse with changes in the pain thre- uh, uh, thresholds. Right. And um, so this has led to just an enormous uh, problem in this country, and it's discussed almost daily on the state and national level. State Medical Association, the medical board, even now are, uh, have ongoing discussions and even a hearing next month about um, you know how we're going to proceed and how we're going to monitor use of these of these medications as well as how we use other medications with them. So, for example, as a psychiatrist, I prescribe. Uh, what we call benzodiazepines or anti-anxiety drugs such as Valium and Xanax. These have problems uh, interacting with opiates because they can cause increased sedation. So that's another struggle that we have uh, when we have patients here on one or the other or or both and we're looking at adding something. And which one do you take away? You know, do you take away the the pain meds or give them pain or do you take away the anti-anxiety med and then their panic goes up? So there's a lot of clinical issues that are going to come up as we move with this and uh, patients going to have to really be patient and trust their doctor who's got their best interest at heart as we move ahead with um, possibly changes in the regulations on how these meds are prescribed, um, which apparently will be coming up very soon. Yeah. Dr. Ladner, do you think that we need to have some change in regulations? I think some change. Of course, you know, you want to have the flexibility to do the right thing for a patient. And that's what we're trained to do. Do it hopefully with people who are clinically uh, very competent and know how to do a good uh, job without causing uh, undue harm. But sometimes even when you're tr- you know, just doing a normal process, such as giving a narcotic after a surgery, there are some people who are just prone to addiction. And I've heard several stories of people who started their addiction you know, after a surgery, like a rotator cuff surgery, for example, something very common. But just for whatever reason, they're just so prone to that addiction that they develop a problem quickly. Mm-hmm. So, um, so limiting, you know, the circumstances where narcotics are given, the length of time they're given, the amount of monitoring when they're given. I think 
is needed. Right. So what would you suggest to some of our listeners out there who may be struggling with this, not even realizing how addictive these medicines are, and perhaps were given fentanyl for pain, and now they they can't get off of it? What what would you suggest that they do? Well, the first thing is I would go back to the doctor prescribing it and then say that I have concerns about either developing an addiction or maybe I've already developed an addiction to this. Do I really need this? What are my other options that I could take instead of a narcotic and opiate to help with my pain? And that's where I would start. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if, it, if that does not uh, satisfy the issue, then they're, uh, you know, get second opinions. Uh, if you're going to uh, not going to a pain clinic, that might be another option. If you're worried already worried about addiction, then seek care from a psychiatrist, for example. Right. So there are some um, helplines out there, and we can also put that on our website um, if if our listeners would like to call in. Do you have a particular uh, great one that you think is is helpful for this kind of issue? There are well, there Dr. Bush. There's a lot of treatment centers. I'd, I'd hate to really kind of just single one out. I, I, right. It, it was multiple. Places now. I mean, on a lower level, you could just seek uh, something like AA, for example, or NA, Narcotics or Alcoholics Anonymous. Those are easy access. Those can help with addiction. That's neat. You know, good first start. That is a good first start. Yep. I agree. So, and, and then it gets more complex after that, where some programs are inpatient, some are residential. You move up to outpatient type programs. So, a lot of options. Right. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any parting words for us that you'd like to uh, give? I know you need to get back to your clinic. I I just think I would tell people that, you know, a lot of this narcotic addiction does not start on the street. You know, it starts in a normal way, like we talked about. After a surgery, for example, and you can develop an addiction, don't be ashamed. Don't not seek care because of uh, guilt or shame. Please, you know, pursue help. Because these are very dangerous, and we see people all the time overdosing on them by accident, usually. Right. um, So that's what I would say. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for taking time out, and we appreciate your work and your knowledge base. Um, So I'll let you get back to work. Thank you. Pleasure. We're going to go to our next break, and when we get back, we'll continue our discussion on opiate addiction, other drug addiction, controlled substances, what to do about it, how to get help. Um, Please join us in uh, our conversation. You can give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. This is Relatively Speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and we'll be right back. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Relatively Speaking. Thanks for listening and thanks for 
calling in and telling us your thoughts. We've still got some open lines and plenty of time, so give us a call if you want to join the discussion about this opioid addiction issue that we have across our nation. And it does seem to be a bigger issue here in the U.S. than anywhere else. Give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Susan in Memphis has been really patiently waiting. Um, thanks, Susan, for calling in. You- uh, good morning. I have a comment, and but I also have a question. Sure. Uh, my comment. My comment is, um, I was spun off my horse and broke my pelvis in three places. Oh, goodness. So, of course, I got a prescription for some, um, I think it was oxycodone. Uh-huh. But um, I knew it was, there's a risk of addiction. So what I try to do is to wean myself off to only taking one pill at night just to take the edge off the pain so I could go to sleep. Uh-huh. But once I was out of the wheelchair and able to walk again, I stopped using that, and I started getting... Um, acupuncture at a wonderful um, integrative medicine clinic here in Memphis. Uh-huh. And a lot of the people that are in the clinic, they're veterans, and the Memphis Veterans Administration pays for their acupuncture, but I have to pay for mine out of pocket. And my question is, why don't insurance companies pay for acupuncture? It's not addictive. <laughs> Susan, what a good question. I think that um, often one of the issues, I'll tell you, one of the issues out there is that um, many times alternative medicine treatments are not covered uh, due to the fact that insurance companies say that they are not evidence-based um, treatments, although they're there are some studies that show acupuncture can be very helpful for the treatment of chronic pain. There's been some evidence that it can be helpful in the treatment of some um, individuals with migraine. They're not huge, large studies, but they're out there. So that's a good question. Um, If done by a well-trained individual, it does seem that it would be perhaps safer significantly safer than uh, a medication that might be addictive. So it sounds like, though, Susan, I just want to comment um, that you did pain medication correctly the way you should have and the way that when these medications are prescribed for the severe post-operative or post-injury pain, one should expect that these are not medications that you should take long term, but to come up with some alternative treatment, some alternative medication. I thought you were going to say that you were taking after you came off the the um, hydrocodone or whatever it was that you you switched to ibuprofen, but instead you switched to a non medication alternative. But certainly, um, I think people forget that ibuprofen or Tylenol sometimes can be helpful, and I would of course always want to consult uh, my physician about which would be a better choice for you. Um, But the uh, uh, 
steroidal anti-inflammatories or acetaminophen um, often are very helpful for pain. So, but there are all other alternative treatments, um, even mindful therapy um, or cognitive behavioral therapy sometimes can be very helpful in um, pain management. Yoga can be helpful. There are other alternatives out there. So why they're not covered um, is a good question that I guess we should ask the industry. Susan, thanks for your call and thanks for your comment. Um, let's go now. We have Sue in Beaumont. Um, Sue, you have a comment. We've barely touched on this, suicide and the allergy, yes, uh-huh. the elderly. I'm sorry. Talk to us well, about that. My daughter lives in another state in an apartment complex, and uh, three people right who live right near her have in the past year committed suicide, and so it, it was upsetting to her, you know. But she did mention that these people lived in isolation, and uh they had no family, apparently, and a person who lives in isolation, lonely, loss of family and no support groups, no one to talk to, uh, something just, sometimes just being able to talk to another human being is so important, and I think that's where that big problem comes in, is having no one to turn to, and you can go to the doctor for your diabetes and your hypertension, and it, that is discussed, but when a person goes in to see a doctor or any other health provider, they I think part of the questionnaire when you come in should be what's going on in your personal life, you know it, and have some so the doctor can get some input or the health provider some input into what's actually going on in that person's life. Do they have any? Because elderly people sometimes are isolated and alone, and it's very disturbing that our mental health system is not geared up to try to to try to help people like that. Sue, you are absolutely so correct. And honestly, we will have another a whole show on um, suicide and suicide prevention because this is such a important area. But you've pointed something out. In the elderly, many times they are isolated, but almost always they have physician visits that they have to go to. They have, most have Medicare coverage now, and so they they are at least able to afford to go to the doctor. There's been a lot of recent work done in the child area on that social, emotional area of life and how important it is in the health and well-being of an individual. And um, we need to remember on the other end of the spectrum in our elderly, it's exactly the same. You are going to do better with your heart, with your liver, with your diabetes, with your pancreas, if you are feeling happy and supported and not struggling about what's going on. So you bring up a point that I hope anybody in our medical community is listening and anyone elderly, if they don't ask, you say, can I tell you about what's really bothering me? I I, I can't afford enough food or... Um, or I'm lonely and I need someone to outreach. Um, there are groups out there who who do try to cater to the elderly, um, not just a Meals on Wheels, but other 
um, issues. So you bring up a great point, uh, and I, I hope everybody's listening. If you think there's somebody out there who's lonely, who's elderly, who might need a quick visit, um, if you happen to have an animal many times, just taking your dog or whatever um, to go visit them and let them just pet the dog or listen to music. If you play an instrument, my brother-in-law um, does a beautiful job of visiting the elderly um, in nursing homes. So, um Thanks for bringing that up. And like I said, I promise you in November we will have a show on this very topic. Sue. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's go to Kelly. Kelly, thanks for calling. In Hattiesburg, you have a comment about pain medication? Yes. Um, I had gone to the dentist to get my teeth and the uh, big teeth in the back removed. I remember. Um, but... It was like your wisdom teeth. <laughs> I can't believe I couldn't remember that. Uh-huh. I had to drill into my jawbone oh. to get them out. It was, a, you know, it was a pretty bad procedure. Right. Um, but that being said, I made it very clear beforehand that I did not want to be offered any sort of opiates. I didn't want anything to do with opiates. That I had had a problem with it in the past, and I just, you know, wanted to stick with ibuprofen. And Good. Nonetheless, they insisted on writing me a prescription, and, you know, I had made it so clear that I didn't want that. But I think that maybe a lot of people in the medical field don't fully understand the uh, the addicted mind, you know, because right. I was able to resist and not even, you know, I didn't even fill that prescription. But I think a lot of other people in my position would have. Absolutely. Know, they would have had a great excuse to do it. And I also wanted to say that I did ibuprofen, and I was fine. With ice and ibuprofen, it really wasn't um, that painful. It was just mostly, like, uncomfortable, you know? Well, Kelly, I, um, you know, that was perfect what you did, telling your uh, dentist that you didn't want it. Um, I find it a bit shameful that they gave it to you anyway, because if you had been an individual with real addictive issues, um, then you're correct. Anybody who has that temptation, when they have it at their disposal, they're likely to go ahead and get it filled. You did the right thing. The only other thing I would have recommended is that you hand it right back and say, I just told you I do not want this. You know, I just wonder if they were worried that they might get a follow-up call that you were having more pain than you thought you would. Um, And that could have been it. But um, I would uh, recommend to any of our, our listeners out there, say that. Say, I want to manage my pain without uh, medication that might be addictive for me. And then try it. And if you can't do it, then call for help. Um, so thanks so much, Kelly, for your call. And gosh, thanks um, to our listeners and our callers and and all. This, was, this is a tough topic. We have a lot more work to do in this area, and hopefully we can get a handle on it. But speak out if you... Um, if you know someone who needs help, we'll put that information on, on our uh, website. Please go to it. 
Today's show was engineered by our producer, Jay White, our call screener, Jared Hallman. Thank you. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and I hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 11 for Relatively Speaking and that you will stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.